So welcome to the second podcast on the discussion board feedback. And this is going to be feedback from discussion board number three and discussion board number four. Now, I just want to preface this by saying that um, I won't be taking up the posts from question one on discussion board number three. And that's because that's been assigned to you as part of your midterm. And um, you know, the midterm is about summarizing those discussion posts and doing an analysis, which is sort of what I do when I talk about the discussion board posts. Um, I sum up those uh, posts in terms of looking at what are the main sort of uh, ideas and themes that have emerged from the posts. And then I do a little bit of an analysis in terms of uh, those posts, particularly with respect to relating them to uh, the readings. And so in a way, your midterm is a, a little bit of mirroring what I do in terms of these podcasts. So just want to put that out there so um, people get a better sense of, you know, how uh, that midterm is structured similar to the way in which I do the podcast for the discussion board posts. So let's start. Uh, so like I said, with um, with the discussion board number three, I'm not going to um, review the posts or do an analysis of the posts from question number one, because that was assigned to you as your midterm question. I will start with question number two um, from discussion board number three, which asks about whiteness. And it says whiteness is a social construct, which means that it can be deconstructed or undismantled, so to speak. And so the question is, what can white allies do to deconstruct dominant constructions of whiteness? And many of you talked about Paul Keeble's article and a number of the strategies uh, for being a white ally. And I'm not going to review those because those are in the actual article where Paul Keeble talks about a number of things that if you're white and you want to be an ally when it comes to race and racism, there are things that you should be aware of and things that um, when you are uh, an active white ally that you should really reflect and think about um, and also um, mirror in terms of the actions that you take. Um, in terms of being a white ally. So I'm not going to go over those. You can actually review those in terms of the article. I think it's pretty clear in terms of the way in which um, Kivel lays those out. I do want to start by saying that many of you recognize that in order to be, um, you know, a white ally in, in a way that helps to deconstruct dominant constructions of whiteness, that you need to start with acknowledging that racism does exist. And so that means that... Um, you know, not denying white privilege and not making it a taboo issue to talk about. Um, oftentimes, I know earlier in my career when I started teaching about race, and this was, I would say, about 15 years ago, 10, 15, almost 20 years ago, when I started teaching race courses in the university, in the colleges, uh, whenever I would get to issues around whiteness and white privilege, there was this automatic wall that went up. Um, uh, there was sort of a resistance to having to even just mentioning the term white privilege. And so I think many of you recognize that we have to take that wall down, that we can't be defensive. If you're really going to be white allies, if, if you're really going to be a white ally, you have to be comfortable 
with talking about whiteness, talking about racism, talking about white privilege. So it's important to not deny its existence and also don't make it a taboo to talk about. Um, there was also the um, recognition that, um, you know, understanding how it exists, that how racism exists and how particularly its systemic nature, which means understanding and challenging white supremacy, because white supremacy is a ideology. It's also a system um, that supports uh, white privilege. And so it's meaning what you need to do as a white ally is to recognize and understand how white supremacy actually exists. And this speaks to racism in systemic form. It also means understanding how to spot these patterns and connections so that you can understand that racism is a systemic um, uh, system. It is something that is not just an individual act. And so um, when we talk about racism, it isn't just about name calling or hate crime or um, more of sort of those um, ways in which we can visibly see it. It often operates in a systemic nature. It operates in a way where it's sometimes very invisible. So, you know, the example where we talked about in the banking industry where people who uh, apply for particular positions and are, quote, told that they are not the right fit, it often has to do with their aspects of aspects of their identity, like race, like gender, um, like uh, um, citizenship, and so on, all of these social identities. And so recognizing that there are patterns and connections that we start to see over and over and over. And that means that racism is not an, it's simply an individual act, but a systemic act. And it's embedded in our institutions. Um, other post talks about educating yourself and others. And so if you're white, you need to not just educate yourself, but also educate those around you. And what we're meaning by those around you are your white um, circles, meaning your white family who is white, uh, friends who are white, having those conversations with them about white privilege, about whiteness, about racism, and the way it manifests itself. So, you know, when you have those conversations, talk about racism and whiteness and the way it manifests itself, both not just economically, but also psychologically, socially, and culturally. And uh, some people gave examples about Frankenberg's uh, three dimensions of whiteness, which is one it is a position of structural advantage. And secondly, it is a standpoint or a gaze, meaning it's the way we see ourselves in terms of those, like through that white gaze and using whiteness as a norm in which to measure our the way in which we see ourselves and others. Um, and it's also ways of being in the world, white culture, norms and values, right? So having those conversations about the way in which whiteness actually operates. Um, some of you talk about the importance of understanding the intersections of white privilege with other forms of identity. Um, there's also resistance on the part of many people who are white and who are poor to understand or to acknowledge that white privilege exists because oftentimes they say that they don't benefit from white privilege, but they do. What they may not benefit from is economic or class privilege. So looking at these intersections and understanding these intersections are important. An example I can give you is that for, you know, someone who is um, um, poor um, is not going to be attacked or, or be a victim of a hate crime because of their race. They may be because of their class status, 
but not because of their race, whereby someone who is a racialized minority um, will be can be a victim of a racial hate crime, uh, regardless of their class, um, because of their race. So again, understanding how these different identities intersect and work with one another, and not denying white privilege um, just because you don't have economic privilege. Understanding the power of whiteness because of the way it is invisible and normalized. So this is another suggestion that people made on the discussion board that we need to understand the way in which white power and privilege operates because oftentimes it's invisible and it's normalized and we don't see it. And so making it visible and making it, uh, um, uh, looking at how it has been normalized is important to being an ally. Um, skills that people who are white ally need are things like critical listening and thinking, critical reflection, questioning your own biases and stereotypes. And as someone pointed out, don't fall prey to a single stereotype, which means that, you know, there is that um, that uh, YouTube, wonderful YouTube video done by a um, Nigerian author, and her name escapes me at, at the moment, where she talks about the idea of a single story and looking at um, different societies and cultures and groups of people who are non-white and just seeing them in as, as a stereotype, that there's only one narrative about those particular groups and people fall prey to that when there's much more than that. And so it also means questioning those stereotypes. It also as an ally means questioning your own position of power, which is important. Um, many of you pointed out that being a white ally means you have to consistently show up. It's not just when it's fashionable or convenient or trending on social media, and it shouldn't be tokenistic. It has to be long, a long-term commitment. And also, um, don't let guilt stop you from acting. Oftentimes, there's a lot of guilt associated with people who are white and who are um, conscious and want to be a white ally. They feel a lot of guilt. Guilt um, stops people from acting. So it's important to not let white guilt be a barrier to being a white ally. And lastly, um, people pointed out that it's important not to recenter whiteness because there's a tendency to do that. And an example is when the Black Lives Matter movement emerged, um, uh, you know, as a global movement, um, people started to say, well, all lives matter. And so that's a way of recentering whiteness because what it, it doesn't acknowledge is that it's not about, um, you know, not saying that all lives matter, but it's recognizing in our society, certain lives matter more than others. And that we do need to call out and recognize this fact. And by saying that black lives matter, it's recognizing that in our societies, black lives often don't matter as much as other or white lives. And so by saying, encountering Black Lives Matter with the statement of all lives matter, it's not acknowledging that. And then someone also gave an example of, you know, a similar example to White Out Tuesdays, which is the response to Black Lives Matter, uh, Blackout Tuesdays. So really good posts and really good reflections on question two and the importance of, you know, what it means to be a white ally in terms of deconstructing whiteness. The next question in a discussion board number three was about critical parenting. And this was based on the Montoya article. And um, basically the, the question was, is it uh, you know, uh, better to teach kids about race earlier than later? Or do you think there's a certain age that's too young to teach them about race? 
And um, most of you, the majority of you said that earlier is better and that there's really no age limit. There were a few that said early, but there is, should be some limit with respect to age where you start. And most of you said, those of you who said that there should be an age limit said around six and seven years old. And your reasoning for this was that, you know, the ability to understand um, the language or understand um, you know, these ideas around race, uh, you know, kids need to be at a certain age to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, one of you or two of you said, you know, it's also about protecting them from the nastiness of, of racism. And, you know, it's, it's too serious to have them learn that early and it can negatively impact their experience of childhood. And again, this is, um, this is a, a bit of the argument that is countered in the article by uh, Montoya and, and other authors of the article who said, you know, that there is this tendency to want to protect children and see them as innocent and, and in a way that becomes a barrier to having those conversations. Um, and so again, you know, this is one of the counter arguments that when we start to think about children needing protecting, we're not realizing that they are exposed from very early, um, you know, to ideas around race, even before they may have verbal language abilities, they, as some of you point out, through just body language and so on. And as we know, children learn about uh, race from as early as three and four years old, they start to learn about race. Um, so most of you say that early um, is better and that there really shouldn't be an age limit in terms of our floor in terms of learning about race. And you pointed out, uh, some of your posts pointed out the problem of this colorblind approach that we often take with children, that we, you know, we want to teach children in a way so they don't see race. But as we've learned in this course, and through um, examples of that democratic racism discourse of colorblindness, by doing the, you know, by, by adopting this colorblind approach, what we are ignoring is the re reality that our societies are organized by race, um, that race is still an organizing factor in the way in which our society operates, in the way in which people are treated. So by taking this approach, we're not really acknowledging the reality of our society and the reality that children um, are going to have to operate in our, or are already operating in a race uh, society that is structured by race. Um, many of you also talked about your own experiences of racism as a child and how this shaped your view. So, you know, um, many of you said that you learned about uh, racism through your own exposure of being subject to racism, right? Um, and this could be through having non-Caucasian names and how that impacted you in terms of, you know, just even the way in which um, your names were, um, uh, the trauma that's associated with your names not being used correctly or um, being made fun of. And some of you talked about that internalized racism where you, you know, obviously internalized uh, the importance of whiteness and there's a lot of, um, hate around your own identity, around uh, being a racialized minorities, and how you had to unlearn that harm you experienced, um, and you had to unlearn it later in life, and you would have liked to have the, had that knowledge to understand what you were experiencing at the time, and you think about how it may have um, impacted you differently, and just from my own experience, I do ask myself those questions too. In, you know, I grew up in, in, in Canada uh, for most of my life, and 
uh, the reality is that, again, um, racism was a very uh, normal part of my experience, particularly in the education system. And so, like many uh, immigrant parents who are struggling with their own sorts of racism that they are experiencing, there is often a wanting to protect their children by not talking about it. And so that was similar to my experience. And in not talking about it, you know, you often had to, you know, deal with it in very um, negative ways. And so you had to unlearn that later in life. So I, re I recognize what many of you are saying in those posts. Um, Many of you pointed out that we should educate ourselves first, first before having these conversations. There's an assumption that all of us can have these conversations and we can have them in a way that's critical and appropriate and so on. And sometimes that's not true because we have to, you know, a lot of us have to educate ourselves about what is race and um, how does it manifest itself and how can we have those conversations, particularly with young children. Uh, a few of you pointed out the importance of critical race theory. Um, because you recognize that race is a permanent feature of society. And critical race theory is based on the theoretical um, tenets that race is something that is embedded in our institutions, right? It recognizes that it's not something that is an anomaly or something that is um, a one-off, that our institutions are actually structured around race. And so if that is the case, then we need to have these conversations early because the institutions, including the education system, is structured along axes of race. Um, many of you pointed out that we should have these conversations or we should teach about power and privilege so that these practices are not normalized or so that you know differential treatment can be recognized and named as discrimination. And um, many of you saw the example of that in the article where it was important for her to teach her daughter about being able to recognize what racism was and being able to call it out and challenge it. Um, and for those, uh, some of you also pointed out, for those for those young children who do discriminate, um, it's important to teach them about that uh, so they don't repeat it. And this goes back to, you know, critical race parenting is not just about teaching non-white children about race. It's just as important to teach uh, white children about race. And so um, critical race parenting, you know, obviously the way in which you teach these children about race, depending on whether white or non-white, will be somewhat different because, again, it, be, it would talk about privilege and what you do with that privilege as a white child and recognizing how you benefit from it, recognizing how to be an ally and all of those things. Um, Earlier is better than later because kids are already exposed to race through media and through education systems and their family, through body language. So many you point out that, you know, we're already teaching children about race through our institutions that we belong to, including our education system and our media. And the messages that they're getting from these institutions are problematic. So we really need to counter those. Um, messages and we need to do those earlier and we need to do it in ways that are kid friendly so having toys and books that can allow for race to be taught in particularly sensitive ways and appropriate ways and also doing so in a safe environment so um really lots of lots of thoughts about that question which i found really interesting and and very um very encouraging in terms of the posts uh that were there Okay, I'm going to move on to discussion board number um, four. And again, there were three questions uh, that were associated with discussion board number four. 
the first question, which most of you did, was uh, Canada's history is riddled with um, uh, examples of racist policies and practices rooted in white supremacy. And it's been almost 50 years since the introduction of the Canadian, of Canada's official multiculturalism act. So the question is, do you believe that Canada is still a white supremacist society? And to explain your position, I think everyone agreed in terms of the posts and response posts that Canada is still a white settler society. It's still a white supremacist society. And you point out that the history uh, is something that is uh, you know, rooted in the development of Canada as a nation state, but there's also an ongoing legacy of colonialism, particularly against indigenous people in Canada. And you point out the types of violence that indigenous people are often disproportionately exposed to. For example, the high number of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls, um, the, the um, high incarceration rate of Indigenous people. You also point to the legacy of residential schools, and I know this is very much in the media today with the discovery of mass graves at residential schools, and that's just, you know, further evidence um, that the legacy of colonialism is still alive and operating with us today. Um, there's also things like addictions, access to education, housing, healthcare, and we could go on and on where it comes to the uh, legacy of colonialism um, today with Indigenous people and the amount of work that needs to still be done. Um, and as many of you, as a few of you pointed out, um, we've had a truth and reconciliation process but there are so few recommendations that have been adopted. And again, many of you, some of you noted that there's a government apathy and a lack of political will to deal with this injustice, the injustices that Indigenous people in this country face. Uh, others pointed to, you know, being people of color who are born in Canada and still don't feel Canadian because you're often treated as not belonging and um, this manifests itself in ways where people are asked about where they're from or when they don't uh, identify to a place outside of Canada, they're continually asked so that people can position them outside the nation. Also people of color in terms of their own internalizing of whiteness as a norm and still aspiring to that norm is um, evidence of the strength of white supremacy. Um, hate crimes was another thing that was actually raised on the discussion board. Uh, today we see with COVID uh, the anti-Asian racism. And again, this is not something that is new. Um, you know, um, Harris Ali's article talks about the history of anti-Asian racism in Canada. And that has been going on since um, uh, Chinese and uh, Japanese people have come to the shores of Canada very early, hundreds of years ago. And uh, that anti-Asian racism has been there and it hasn't left. It manifests itself differently at different times and it becomes more virulent at particular times, particularly when you see things like um, SARS or COVID-19, uh, it becomes more uh, um, visible to people, but it's always there. Uh, Islamophobia is another example people pointed to the current kinds of um, things like, for example, legislative bill C30 banning of particular sorts of um, religious um, dress and so on, um, which impact obviously um, particular religious groups like Muslims more than others. 
the ongoing anti-black racism, disproportionate violence against black and brown bodies, um, racial profiling. Uh, there's just uh, many types of crimes, hate crimes that we see. Um, there's also many examples in terms of institutional racism, which also, you know, in employment, education, justice, and policing, which is evident again of, uh, you know, the fact that Canada is still very much a white supremacist society. And the reality is that white supremacy is historically deep rooted. Uh, we see that from the readings. We know that from what we see currently uh, in terms of those patterns. It's embedded into the development of Canada as a nation state. So we, if we're going to challenge uh, white supremacy and dismantle it, we need to look at the way in which it's embedded and, uh, and dismantle those institutions in terms of its structure on white supremacy. Okay, um, the last two questions. Question number two is about Proulx's article where he talks about white backlash and white fragility. And when it comes to indigenous communities in Canada, do you believe it's possible to reduce or eliminate white supremacy, sorry, white fragility in Canada? And um, a few of you answered this, very few, but those who did said it's impossible to dismantle, at least in the next while, because people still refuse to acknowledge the injustice against indigenous people and that Canada is a white settler society. And when white people tell people of color or indigenous, particularly, sorry, when they tell uh, people of color to go back where they came from, which is a common statement that many people of color are subject to when they experience racism. Um, when they when they hear this statement, what it does is it, it refuses to acknowledge that white people are also settlers, that they are not indigenous to this land. And so um, many of you, a few of you who answered these, uh, this question talked about those examples and ex those examples being um, evidence that it's not possible to reduce or elimin eliminate white fragility, at least not in the um, current environment that we're in. And then the last question is, uh, what discourses of democratic racism have shaped the history of Canada? Uh, sorry, have shaped the history of race and ethnicity in Quebec? And do you believe these discourses are changing? And a few of you answered this question and the discourse that was um, raised by those who did was that discourse of denial. And there were some great examples given. So for example, the idea of Premier Legault, who talked about um, the denying of existence of racism in Quebec. And this was after the killing of George Floyd in the US. And Premier Legault said, you know, that doesn't happen in Quebec. And you also see this type of discourse, this discourse of denial being um, used by other politicians, uh, Ford in Ontario after the storming of the US Capitol by Trump supporters um, and largely white supremacists. There was a denial of that could ever take place in Canada. And so um, we see this discourse of denial emerging oftentimes in comparison to the United States. Uh, someone also talked about the question of whose history is taught and how, and it's often European history when we talk about the history of Quebec. It, you know, many of you may not have been even familiar with the, um, the hanging uh, and of, um, you know, um, I'm sorry, the name escapes me, of uh, the young black woman who was accused of burning uh, down uh, parts of Quebec. Um, you may have never even heard of that story. And so we have to ask ourselves again, whose history is left out and why? 
And is it because it allow the reason often is it because it allows a dominant narrative to be sustained. And Quebec has a particular narrative, right? It is a minority within a majority culture um, because of its French speaking um, culture and being located within a largely English speaking country. But just because you're a minority in one way does not mean that you are not a uh, um, a, a majority or a dominant body in another way. And when we look at the history of race in Quebec, we see that quite clearly. So those were the um, posts in terms of the summary and uh, a little bit of analysis. And you can see, I can see that, you know, many of your response posts and your posts actually engaged very critically with the literature, which was really good. There's still a few people, though, um, that really need to um, think about your uh, posts and response posts, particularly response posts, making sure that you're not just simply repeating the posts that you're responding to or just um, acknowledging it, making sure that you expand on it or you add something new. Um, so thanks again, and um, I will be back uh, next week with uh, my summary and analysis of uh, further discussion boards.